Hello folks, my name is Kenny Walker and you're listening to the Rail and Road Podcast. Firstly, thanks to everyone who downloaded, listened and commented on our first two episodes where we discussed the subjects of accessible travel and also the important issue of mental health and the rail industry's long-standing partnership with the Samaritans. However, in this, our third episode, I'm joined by ORR's very own Deputy Director for Access and International, Martin Jones, and Head of Access and Licensing, Gareth Clancy, here to talk about how decisions are made about what fits where on Britain's railway, the balancing act between passenger and freight services, and what happens when disagreements arise. So before I bring in Martin and Gareth, here are some facts that will provide context to what we're discussing today. Did you know that on Britain's railway, there's 15,904 kilometres of track, and pre-COVID, on average, over 20,000 trains ran a day in Great Britain, carrying almost 1.75 billion passengers in the year to March 2020. And during the same period, there were almost 210,000 freight train movements. Now, we all know the importance of trains arriving on time and the importance of a good timetable. And underpinning this are the decisions Network Rail makes on what trains, both passenger and freight, can run where and when. So let's bring in Garth. Garth, it's a, a pretty big challenge to fit 20,000 trains onto the network every day. But before we get into more of the issues and details, it's probably a good starting point to ask you if you can break down for us what access and licensing on the railway means in practice and how it works. Yeah, thanks, Kenny. Uh, I suppose that's a great place to start. And uh, I have to apologise to for any oversimplification I make, but hopefully uh, uh, the sort of the interest of the topic will compensate. Um, so the access in this context is about the capacity of the space on the network and how it's allocated. Passenger and freight trains uh, operators, they need to formalise all of this through uh, track access agreements or contracts with the infrastructure managers. Now, the biggest infrastructure manager for us, that's Network Rail. And it comes as no surprise, I suppose, that operators possibly want to go to the same or similar destinations at times which uh, are also similar. So that makes it a really complex problem to resolve in terms of planning the use of the capacity and the track access that each operator uh, should should be granted. And then from then on, obviously Network Rail produces those timetables. It's my team's job to make sure that this is done in a fair and non-discriminatory way. But just quickly, the, the licensing part, which is also important to the way the uh, the network rail and the whole industry operates is is really important because of uh, it ensures that train operators and infrastructure managers are fit and proper and that is fit and proper to obviously work in the rail industry you know that covers everything from safety through to finance um, so it's a real cross office piece of work uh, the licensing um, uh, c- conditions and it protects the public interest I suppose and that's the most important thing about licensing by setting things out transparently, making sure that operators and infrastructure managers are clear on what's expected of them and the behaviours that they should uh, should demonstrate. Again, you, as you would expect, Network Rail, being the biggest infrastructure manager, has quite a lot of conditions in, within its licence because it's so big and its central role in the industry. Thanks very much, Gareth. Uh, we mentioned at the start of, of the episode, obviously, the, the scale of passenger services, 20,000 a day on average. Most of these are prescribed by government. Uh, but what about the rest? How does this get decided, Martin? Well, in very simple terms, Kenny, the the vast majority of services, so so about sort of 80% of the use of the uh, of, of the rail network is at the moment is for is for passenger services that are 
that are uh, specified um, and contracted by the um, by the department for for transport. Um, so so it lets contracts for people to run those uh, services and and the infrastructure manager network rail then needs to consider how best to include those services on the network. So what's what what's the other twenty percent? Well well a decent chunk of that is. Um, is, is more passenger services that are contracted by um, by by other funders. So, so for example, uh, transport is uh, is devolved in Scotland, and so uh, so Transport Scotland commissions services up there. And there are other parts of the network, Transport for Wales, and Mersey Rail, where again a a different body funds specifies the public services, and occasionally those services um, interact um, with the services that are. Uh, specified by DFT. Outside that, and a, a, a smaller percentage uh, still of, of what's the, of, of what operates are uh, services that aren't aren't funded or backed or, or specified by government. So, so entirely sort of private um, operations. And these, uh, a lot of these are are freight operations um, operating on an entirely commercial basis, and also what we call open access operators. So that's passenger operators. Who, who have an entirely commercial operation and, and operate without uh, government support. But similarly, um, those private operators have to engage with Network Rail or, or the other infrastructure manager, if there is one. And, you know, they will need to, to, to receive an analysis of capacity and performance uh, to be carried out before it's decided whether those services could be granted the right to access the network and can be included in the timetable. and. It's worth stressing that it is the infrastructure manager, normally Network Rail's job to do capacity allocation. I read something recently which said it was our job to do capacity allocation. Uh, that that's not our job. What what our job is to do, in, in one aspect, is to um, is is to deal with uh, disagreements. So so most of the time, uh, Network Rail and the and the operators agree about um, about the access that's needed, and they can find. An agreement and reach a contract on the on the access rights and on the inclusion in the timetable. And and in those cases, it's just our job to to to, to check their work. In the case of uh, disagreements, um, ORO is often the the appeal body for resolving those those issues. And that's how how we decide uh, how how it gets decided who who can who can use the network and when. Okay. Thanks, Martin. So. Quite a big role as well there for, for obviously Network Rail in the process that you mentioned. How do you feel Network Rail are, are doing and why does ORR get involved in the process? Isn't it best left to industry? Um, well, it is, um, you know, it is, it is a complex job, which, which you know, Network Rail generally does and other infrastructure managers generally generally do well. It's part of their sort of bread and butter and a core part of their, their function as an infrastructure manager. But it is a very complex job and, you know, to put it into... To context, there were sort of over half a billion train kilometres of publicly uh, publicly contracted operators or, or franchised operators in 2019-20, and about five million train kilometres of those non-franchised operators I talked about, including open access, and about 30 million train kilometres of, of, of freight. Uh, and by the way, I don't carry those numbers around in, in my head. You can find them all on. ORR's excellent uh, data portal if you want to find out more. So so the bulk of Network Rail's planning activity necessarily focuses on that on, on that majority of the task on ensuring the publicly 
commissioned operators can be fit fairly and robustly and not onto the network and not come into conflict with each other. But of course, Network Rail also needs to ensure it treats the non-franchised operators and, and freight operators fairly as as well. Now, at the, at the back end of last year, we set out where we think um, Network Rail can do better in, in some areas. And, and, and where we think that is, is primarily in ensuring it produces that the evidence for its um, capacity allocations decisions in a in a more prompt and, and more transparent manner than it has done in some cases recently. And from our point of view, the primary reason an independent regulator needs to be involved in all this is because all the other organisations involved, network rail, public operators, private operators, they have their own objectives, incentives, um, and drivers behind their decisions. And, and that means that sometimes, um, unfortunately, decision-making processes work against the interests of some of the parties who are who are involved and affect their ability to to plan and deliver their business. And, and our role is to um, help resolve those issues and to ensure that access to the network is is fair and non-discriminatory and you know it's worth saying that a lot of the time this this can be left to the industry where the parties agree for example network rail and a train operator all, all the legislation requires us to do is to check that their agreement doesn't adversely affect others and to 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 formally approve what the industry has agreed now it's not just a rubber stamp you know we do add value here because because often we spot things that have been missed or prevent be mistakes being made that then could create timetabling problems later on. However, most critically, when network rail and an operator cannot reach agreement, there does need to be an impartial check and a way of uh, resolving that. The industry has processes for, for, for doing this, but, but ultimately ORR is the regulatory body who can be appealed to uh, to resolve these problems. Okay, so um, there's acknowledged congestion of the, the east and west coast main lines. Alongside these, what are the biggest access and capacity challenges uh, you think there is, and, uh, or ORR thinks there is, and what's happening to address these? So, I mean, you, you mentioned east, east and, and west coast, Kenny. So, so the congestion on the east coast main line and the challenges faced by network rail, the passenger operators and freight is, is a very well-known problem. Uh, within the industry and a focus of quite a lot of industry attention and OLR attention at the moment. On the West Coast main line, there are two specific parts of the of the network that, that Network Rail has officially declared as, as congested. And, and they're they're what's known as the, the Castlefield Corridor, which is um which is a which is in Manchester, and also the southern stretch of the of the West Coast main line um, between Leadman Junction and, and Camden South. Now, this doesn't mean they're the only areas of the network that are congested. It's just that legally Network Rail must declare areas um, where it feels it's not um, going to be able to accommodate new applications for, uh, for use of capacity. So these areas, East Coast, West Coast main line, uh, are likely to continue to be hot areas uh, by virtue of the destinations they serve, you know they are among the busiest parts of the UK network, which is itself one of the one of the busiest in 
in, in in Europe. So so you know we are you know monitoring network rail quite closely to ensure they develop plans to to address those capacity constraints. Thanks, Martin. And what about any upcoming challenges? Is there anything that you're concerned about in the near future? Now, in terms of big upcoming challenges, I don't think we can really get through this uh, discussion without mentioning coronavirus. Um, unfortunately, it's it's and it's been well documented, um, including um, including in the media this week, that there have been significant changes, and there will probably be more changes in the level of rail passenger services, while at the same time. Um, freight services haven't been affected uh, to the on freight demand hasn't been affected to the same extent and in fact we we should be grateful that freight's managed to continue its services because of the need to get goods where they need to be um, around the country during the um, during the pandemic big changes and shifts like that um, mean that government network rail and private operators need to consider what access they need to use the railway network and to ensure that any amendments or changes are done in a fair way and and that's probably going to place a big emphasis on our on our role yeah i, I think it's just that i probably want to add the fact that obviously that those challenges they're faced obviously by the orr but also other organizations who need to be able to predict or, or model uh, the future demand and that that future demand uh, on use of the network obviously makes that job an awful lot more difficult in terms of uh, uh, introducing the uncertainty and so it's, a, it's difficult for funders to know what they should be specifying in terms of services it's difficult for the infrastructure manager to know uh, what uh, level of access applications and capacity it, it can allocate now uh, uh, um, and in the future uh, and that's always been a difficult uh, job, uh, but uh, obviously that uncertainty makes it uh, makes it even more complex. And then obviously, for, you know, for us, um, you know, what do we consider to be fair now, and what will be fair in the future? So it's it, it has added an extra layer of complexity, which which is quite quite interesting. Yeah, and I would I would say that the other sort of big issue that's brought, been brought into sharp relief by by the impact of coronavirus on the railway is is how and when uh, Network Rail constructs um, the timetable because obviously there are a lot of existing fixed rights to use the network but it's 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 understandable of course that in these sort of uncertain times uh, there's a desire to be more flexible and dial the passenger service up and down you know to fit uh, government funds to fit demand but um, at the same time while that flexibility is understandable you where we have commercial operators and their private investors they need planning certainty and certainty of of access and that they can and that they can work the, the the timetable that they've that they've asked for and again this is something that at ORR we've we've written to network rail about publicly to to ensure that you know what that, that flexibility doesn't come at the expense of you know fair transparent access decisions and uh, use you know and, and use of the network in the in the best public interest yes yeah, so, and yeah, just to build on that martin i think there's something amongst all of this this change and sort of uncertainty that comes from coronavirus and, and the desire for flexibility and it sort of goes back to that demand point about whether or not operators plan to use all of the access rights that they currently have and 
I think it's it, it's a very interesting question at the moment how best both the industry, the funders, and us as a regulator treat that particular topic, because I, I'm sure the you know the public would would have a sort of a view on um, whether access was being you know for inverted commas hoarded or held onto uh, by some operators but not used. Uh, but at the same time, if you know, if demand does return in the future or when demand um, sort of picks back up, you know, even just after the, the current constraints that we're experiencing, um, it makes sense to make sure that, you know, the, the space and the, the capacity on the network uh, is used in the best public interest. So um, there's a sort of there's a, a sort of conflicting sort of uh, issues going on there that, uh, you know, I think uh, it's it's again. It's as I said earlier. It's something that is challenging probably everyone in the industry on how to to approach that particular issue around uncertainty and whether or not people's plans now are going to sort of mean lower levels of service for a, an extended period of time, and therefore they're not using the contractual rights that they currently possess. Okay. Thanks both. So it's fair to say that there's a lot going on uh, from timetabling changes, the the impact of coronavirus demand for access. So disputes must arise. Um, how often does this happen and why do the disputes uh, come about? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I think the thing as Martin emphasised earlier on uh, is the fact that, you know, there, there are an awful lot of access applications which are approved between infrastructure managers and, uh, and operators. Uh, I guess the, the thing is that when the uh, just disputes or the disagreements do occur, they tend to occur because the complexity of the uh, the of the issue has got to the point where uh, the two sides don't see eye to eye. To eye. But I think, uh, as I said, the the scale of those approved or agreed applications is like within the last six months, the access and licensing team have have provided the check and the balance and the quality assurance uh, for over fifty of those between Network Rail and uh, both passenger and freight operators. But so I guess I, the message there is that, you know, I suppose even with coronavirus that we've just talked about, that, you know, the planning of the railway uh, has con has continued. But over the same period, uh, there have been sort of some particularly sort of challenging and complex uh, freight applications. They have tended to be in the areas that we've described in terms of the congested areas on the network. So on the East Coast main line and on the, the, the Castlefield corridor. And I think those those are particularly uh, sort of complex areas for the reasons that, that we've discussed. But in addition to those, there are actually access applications, as, as we call them, which are sort of on pause, if you like, um, waiting for planning to be uh, completed, uh, for example, on the West Coast main line. So, so there are currently competing applications that want to uh, to run uh, services on, on the West Coast mainline. And it's not logical for either uh, Network Rail or for ORR to determine or, or direct uh, contractual arrangements on that until um, planning work and timetabling work has been done. So I guess that you can provide that almost as, a, a, as an example of where uh, the ORR has sort of taken a balanced approach in terms of rather than over allocating or pushing disputed decisions to a conclusion, uh, we've taken a sort of a, a, a pragmatic approach to ensure that um, 
uh, no further problems are added to, to to the network. But yeah, I think that I think the point I'm making there is I think that the numbers might appear small in terms of uh, a handful of cases over the last six months, but the issues are complex. So the Castlefield corridor, for example, that was something uh, on the uh, on the freight side where it is a very busy part of the network, but you know. On looking upon the uh, the applications, it was important for us to to consider whether or not it's busy, you know, throughout the day. Because uh, unsurprisingly, parts of the network are not are not busy twenty four seven. Yeah, and then as as I just said, there's also equally we don't want to over allocate trains onto busy parts of the network, and that's certainly something that we need to con- we've had to consider in our decisions on the East Coast Main Line. Thanks, Gareth. That was very insightful. And unfortunately, folks, that's us almost at the end of today's podcast. But before we bring this to a close, do either of you have any final comments? Uh, well, from my point of view, just to just to thank you, Kenny, for um, for ha- for having us, um, and as well as doing that, to to go back to what uh, Gareth just said about some of the really complex disputed cases we've been dealing with 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 recently. And I, and I think if you look back at those cases, and and you look back at our decision making on on other uh, disputed applications be they open access freight or or anything else over 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 the years you know i i think what really shines through from that is the is 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 the is the balance impartiality we 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 bring to all this work you know um i i've only been in this role for 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 6 or 7 months myself and and even in that time i've often heard it said that there's there's perception out there that that you know orr favors you know certain types of operator or um you know or that we're responsible for over allocating capacity and making and making congestion work and i think actually if you look at the evidence if you look closely at the decisions we've made that that balance that that rigor that fairness and impartiality uh, really uh, really shines through and i think it's 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 really important that we uh, that, w- that we talk about that but that's all i had to to add at this point Thanks very much, Martin. And thank you, Gareth, as well. Uh, Very insightful chat today. Um, Thanks for chatting to us. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to this episode.